ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. We're going to look at the entire chapter, all of chapter 7, but we're going to break it up a little bit. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. I want to um, express my gratitude to Jesse Robinson for filling in last week. It was uh, good for Kathy and Lydia and I to be away. We went to Kathy's parents in North Carolina and um, had some fun, but uh, Jesse was wrapping up uh, the, the first, basically, half of Zechariah. Zechariah is in two parts, essentially. And, uh, and so Jesse was giving this uh, culmination to the eight visions that Zechariah had initially received. And, uh, and now we're moving and shifting uh, away from visions and that sort of thing to uh, more of the pronouncements, uh, uh, some of the, the words that God is speaking through his people uh, directly through the prophet Zechariah. So if you have your place in your Bibles, let's stand in honor of God's Word. As I said, let me, do, uh, let me read verses 1 through 3, actually. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray for your blessing on your word to us this morning. Uh, please help us see the glory of Jesus. Uh, help us uh, to see more of his glory reflected in us, that we would be ambassadors of your blessing uh, to this world, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, my, uh, my dad has the interesting distinction of being born on Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, that doesn't mean that he happens to be born on December 7th, which you know, our, our nation considers to be Pearl Harbor Day, uh, but he was born on the day, December 7th, 1941, when the attack happened, a day that will live in infamy. Not because my dad was born, mind you, but because of the uh, Japanese attack on uh, territorial U.S. So anyway... What, hap what happened uh, in that, that attack? Uh, this, this day that our nation continues to remember, right? It, it looks back on December 7, 1941 uh, with grief and lament, and we you know, put our flags at half-mast, uh, and there's still those who survive to tell the tale. They're, they're like 99 and 100 and 103 years old uh, today, but there are still those uh, who, who remember and were there. Um, 2,400 people lost their lives. Uh, 1,000 of those lives were lost on the USS Oklahoma alone uh, when it was bombed and went down. Um, they weren't just soldiers. There were also civilians who died. And, uh, and then in addition to those 2,400 that died, there were 1,000 who were injured. Uh, there were 20 ships that went down in, uh, in, in, that, uh, in that naval base at Pearl Harbor. Eight of them were destroyers. Uh, it was a, an incredible blow to the Pacific fleet. Uh, not only ships, but 
aircraft, 300 aircraft were bombed right there on, uh, in their hangars, on their runways, etc. So obviously a, a devastating attack, uh, one that, that stands out, one that we, we continue to remember, and here we are, you know, 70 odd years after the fact. Um, December 7th was, is a date that, that we remember. December 7th, uh, it was a date that was prominent for Zechariah. This was, you know, a number of years before Pearl Harbor, uh, 2,500 years before Pearl Harbor, December 7th, uh, 518 BC. And uh, as you read verse 1 of chapter 7, you see um, some, some dates uh, that are listed there. It's a Babylonian calendar that's being referenced. It's not the Gregorian or, you know, the Roman calendar that we're familiar with. So we've got to do a little a little Shire reckoning uh, to come up with, with you know, December 7th, uh, 518 BC. And, uh, and this is now uh, two years after chapter one, uh, chapters 1 through 6 of Zechariah. Uh, we were told way back in chapter 1, verse 7, that there was a different date, February 15th, 519 BC, when Zechariah received those eight visions. And now we are uh, two years down the road, and, uh, and a, an envoy has come from Bethel, 12 miles north of Jerusalem. If, if that's actually where the envoy came from, there's a little bit of uh, some textual variance uh, and, and question about maybe, uh, depending on where one of the Hebrew letters is, uh, did they come from Babylon? Um, a, a great distance away. Uh, the, the origin doesn't matter as much as the question and the purpose. And as these folks come to Jerusalem, as they come to inquire in verse 3 of the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and of the prophets, they are asking, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? They're asking this question about this 70-year practice ever since uh, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. Uh, They've been fasting in the fifth month. And now uh, the temple is being rebuilt. Possibly it's already been rebuilt or it's still under construction. We're not sure. But but there's this question, right, of, all right, so now what? Uh, Things are changing. Things are different. Or... (laughs) Maybe we can relate to this a little bit. People have been praying and fasting and continuing to to pour out their hearts to God, knocking on the door of heaven, asking for Him to do something about the condition of His people and the church and the community and the country. And um, boy, everything still looks a lot like Aleppo. Just bombed out and destroyed and ruined. Um, and our lives get like that. And we have these pinch points spiritually where there's pain. And we want the Lord to address the pain. And we need Him to answer prayers. And the door keeps getting knocked on. We're the persistent widow, uh, persistent widower, whatever your role is. And you're just wondering, uh, do I keep doing this? Am I getting any traction, God? Is this going to bear fruit eventually? Uh, what's going on, right? So that's December 7th. Um, and when this question comes, should we, should we 
continued to weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years. That's, that's a reference uh, to what's happened 70 years ago, as I said, on August 24th, 586 B.C., a day that will live in infamy for Israel. Because that was the day uh, in the fifth month when Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonian army uh, just laid waste to Jerusalem and to the temple. You, you, we hear about it in 2 Kings uh, chapter 25. Uh, a couple of verses summarize it really uh, in a helpful way. It says, in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year. This is August 24th, 586 B.C. Uh, the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's houses, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. This is why Israel has been fasting in the fifth month for 70 plus years. To commemorate this day of infamy for Israel. And the temple had been burned, the walls around the city uh, had been destroyed, and the people had been carried into exile. And there's a lot of pain uh, in, in, in this group of people because of that. So that gives you the setting uh, for what's going on uh, as, we, as we go into chapter 7 of Zechariah. I want to I pull back before we read the rest of the chapter, sort of Zechariah's response and the prophets, uh, presumably some other prophets uh, who were responding. Uh, let me pull back for a second and talk about the goal of, of religion, uh, because this is going to, Zechariah's response is going to show us how this works. So There's this question that's going to come up. Why are we fasting? Why do we, why do, we do anything spiritually? Why do we come here on Sunday mornings uh, to sing and to pray and to, to listen to a guy talk? Uh, why do we give our money? Why do we um, go and do picnics at the park? Why do we do this stuff? What's this all about? What's the goal of this? What's the goal of Religion is, is one way to couch the question in a very, very broad way. Um, so the purpose behind our being uh, brought back into relationship with God, the goal for why we are restored uh, as his image bearers, uh, the, the reason why God saves us, the big picture, is so that we can reflect the glory of God anew, and so that we can be ambassadors of his blessing. Think of it in those two categories. There's other ways to describe it, but we're just going to use those two categories today. Reflections of God's glory and ambassadors of blessing, right? Um, this is why God restores us. This is why he saves us. This is why he pursues relationship with us. He's, he's 
amending and correcting something that was lost. When we were first created, we were His image bearers, we reflected His glory, we were ambassadors of blessing to a new creation, and then sin enters the world. Uh, We turn in on ourselves, we turn against one another, we turn against creation, we turn against God, and, you know, that's what's responsible for all the ruin that we encounter, and, uh, and God is in the business of saving and restoring and renewing us. Why does He do that? so that we can be reflections of his glory anew and ambassadors of his goodness, of his blessing. The prophets talked about this. This isn't, you know, Jesus or the apostles. Back, back in the prophets, listen to Isaiah 58. Another discussion, by the way, among the prophets to God's people concerning fasting. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, you know, every harsh yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, You shall call, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. So, just using this as a snapshot, what's the goal of religion? Why does God save us? Why does he restore us? It's so that we can be like him. Now, think about what Isaiah has just told us. Here's what God wants for our, you know, fasting, our religious practices, and so on. Um, it's so that in, 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 this, in this case, you know, sharing your bread with the hungry, clothing the naked, not hiding yourself from those who need help, and then, you know, the Lord will, will call when you answer. Why does he want us to do that stuff? Does he just want us to stay busy? Does he just want us to look spiritual and to do religious things that people sort of identify as that's what, you know, religious people do? Or is there a deeper reason? The deeper reason is this. He wants us to be about these things because that's what he does. God cares about the homeless. God cares about the hungry. God cares about those who don't have clothing. God cares about those who need mercy. And so God wants us to be like him. That's part of our restoration. So In Ephesians 5, Paul sums it up like this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love because we've been dearly loved. Live a life of love. Be imitators of God. Live a life of love because we've been dearly loved just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we're supposed to be imitators of God, reflections of his glory, ambassadors of his blessings. We want to bless those around us because we're just, we're the conduits of the ways that God wants to bless them. That's why he wants us to want to bless them. And so it goes. So, so that is the goal of true religion. True religion understands that we're here for a purpose, to glorify God, to be ambassadors of his blessing. And that's sort of in contrast to the conventional idea of what religion is for. That to the typical person, 
the way that the world tends to think in spiritual categories is that if, if you do something sacrificial for God or for somebody else, if you pray, if you are a religious person, you do that in order to get some degree of comfort or prosperity for yourself. And it's basically to advance yourself, either in God's eyes or in the eyes of the people around you who know, yep, there he goes, yep, there she goes. Boy, what a spiritual person. I wish I could be like them. You know. um, so let's go back to Zechariah and look, uh, pick up in verse 5, where, uh, where the, this is the response now to this question. Hey, should we continue to fast? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Verse 5, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, listen to this question. Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with the cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Isn't this what you've been told for years by the prophets? Isn't this what I've been telling you, my people, for years and years and years? That you're not supposed to fast for yourself. You're not supposed to feast for yourself. But this is supposed to be about devotion uh, to God, that he's restored us for a purpose. So the former prophets in verse 7, let's go back to Isaiah 58. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Presumably all those things are happening because, well, these are threats to my comfort. This person's in the way of my advancement. Um, this person is blocking a, a blessing that I want for myself. And so that's why we mistreat one another. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Let me show you something. For those of you who don't know, this is a chair. Uh, this, is, uh, th this was a Christmas gift uh, from my dad, the guy who's, you know, infamous. Um, so this was given to Sarah a, a few Christmases ago. And this chair was refinished, uh, belonged to my nan. She lived to be 100, and uh, her funeral was a year and a half ago or so. Um, she lived to be 100, and this was her, her sewing chair. Um, that's why, as my dad tells me, I'm not sure I've got all of the furniture details correct, but this is what I'm operating under, the assumption I'm working on, okay? So the, these arms are shortened, right? I mean, isn't that weird? Who has a chair with these really short arms? Uh, because if you're a seamstress um, or a seamster, because we're about equal opportunity here, uh, seamstress or a seamster, you, you, you don't want to have your elbows constantly hitting, you know, the edges of the thing. But you need a little elbow support every now and then. So you got these short little arms. Um, and my dad had this, uh, his mom, my nan's chair restored. Um, so it's got this new piece of wood here for that uh, shortened armrest and so on. But it's been, you know, refinished and, um, and, and varnished. Uh, if you're 
an antique furniture collector, you look at this and you go, oh no, what happened to the original patina? Uh, but it's fine. We, we like it. Um, it's good. And we sit in it in our, in our living room. So why was this chair restored? This chair's restored so that we could sit in it and enjoy having uh, this reminder of my nan, you know, something tangible and close and, and personal to us. And it's in our living room, and it's a blessing. It's a blessing to us. This chair was refinished for a purpose, to kind of get back to its original purpose, why it was made in the first place to be a chair that somebody could sit in. This chair was not restored so that it can do other things. I don't know. Um, This chair would not make a very good hat. Don't try this at home. I'm not going to let go. I'm not, that's not, that would be a bad idea. So you don't want to make a hat out of a chair. Um, I know we're into like repurposing things, and that's fine. You can do that. But I still think if you were to make a birdbath out of it, it wouldn't. It just. It's, I'm not getting. I'm not getting birdbath from the chair. Uh, and I think it would also make for kind of a lousy um, workbench. I don't know. I'm not. I can do stuff around the house. I, I know how a drill works, but I'm the guy that would be drilling through the two by four and go right through the two by four right into the chair. It's just, you, know, you don't want me, speaking for myself, to use this as a workbench. And it's just not what the chair is for. It was restored to be a chair. It was restored for a purpose. And so when God restores us and when he enters into a renewed relationship with us, extends mercy and kindness and makes us born again, new image bearers, new creations, and all of those words apply to you through the gospel, guess what happens? You are restored to what God originally made you to be, his image bearer, a reflection of his glory, an ambassador of blessing, not as we pick back up in verse 8, Look again what's happening uh, as this question about, hey, why do we do spiritual stuff? <laughs> is it for me or is, are we fasting for the Lord? And the word of the Lord in verse 8 came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear and made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called... And they would not hear, so they called. And I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. God's design, his purpose for us as reflections of his glory, as ambassadors of his blessings. Uh, there's a little outline here in verses 9 and 10, four things that that, how, how do we demonstrate that? What does that look like? What is, 
What's the purpose for why we're doing all these things? Well, is it about me and fasting for me and what I want, my personal comfort and prosperity? Or is this something bigger? Is this so I can be a blessing, an ambassador of Christ's blessings, where we render true judgments to one another? Where we show kindness and mercy to one another? Where we care for widows and orphans and aliens and strangers and the hungry and the homeless and where we do not devise evil against another in your heart. Do you know what all four of those categories have in common? Others. Other people. Christianity was never intended to be sort of the self-serving um, way that I can manipulate God or, or other people and pursue personal comfort and prosperity. It's just not. It's designed uh, to be done in community, in relationships, with integrity, with one another, as we start to reflect the qualities and the attributes of God to each other, where God is true in His judgments. We should be too. So, you know, are, am I as equitable in my opinions about other people as I want them to be in their opinion about me? To show kindness and mercy to one another. Am I giving other people the benefit of the doubt that I sure wish they would give to me, Right? And it, it all happens in the context of the other. God is calling us away from our narcissism and our selfishness to be expressions of his outwardness, of his love, his otherness. And so when we look at this, uh, this question about fasting, it reminded me of another passage that maybe is familiar to some of you. If you're new to the Bible or new to church, Jesus told this story about a really religious man, he was a Pharisee, and a really unreligious man, he was a tax collector, and they both um, sort of end up at the temple on the same day, the same time to pray. Uh, and the Pharisee, it's interesting, the, the way that Jesus spins this phrase, Jesus makes us see that he's not really praying to God, he's praying to himself. He prays to himself, he stands up, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that you see on the front of your bulletin, you know, the prominent Pharisee, and he's standing, and he's very proud, and then you've got this tax collector crouching, hiding in the shadows in the back. We'll talk about him in a second. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's my question. Who is the Pharisee fasting for? He's fasting for himself. He's all about himself. And in Zechariah, you know, it seems like, I know that we, we tend to not be as familiar with the minor prophets as maybe other parts of our Bibles. I think the same was true back then. This Pharisee, it's been a long time since he'd read Zechariah. Otherwise, he would have remembered chapter 7, verse 5, God saying, was it for me that you fasted? And then in verse 13, we read this, this, this sentence, right? This, um, this, this awful word that, look, as I called and they would not uh, hear, so they called and I would not hear. So the Pharisees' prayers are not going to be heard. His sacrifices, his offerings are not going to be received because he doesn't understand what they're about. Why is he fasting? Was it for me, God says, that you fasted? All of his sacrifices and prayers were a show. Who is he fasting for? Himself. 
Now you look at the tax collector, and Jesus contrasts the two men. Really religious man, he's relying on his own religiosity, and then you've got this tax collector, and what's he relying on? Uh, The tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's he relying on? He's certainly not relying on his religiosity. He is relying on the mercy of God. His sacrifice, if you want to call it that, is relying on God's kindness. It's very God-centered. It's very God-oriented. It has nothing to do with him apart from the fact that what he's bringing, his offering, is his sins. Not his fastings and not his show and not his pretense. So that, the irony in Jesus' parable is that it's the, it's the tax collector, not the religious man, who shows us what true religion is. He wants a renewed relationship with God. That's why the tax collector is praying. And his reliance on God's mercy as opposed to relying on his religion is what pleases God. And that's why Jesus says, look, this man, the tax collector, his prayer was heard. His prayer was answered. And he went home justified. The other guy, not so much. Not really at all. So, The tax collector went home justified because of actually what Jesus would do in his place and in our place, in the place of all who are looking to a restored relationship with God as as we do religion. That it's about God. It's about Jesus. Not about my comfort, blessing, prosperity, whatever, but it's about I want to be restored in my relationship with God so that I can be a reflection of his glory and I can be an ambassador of his blessings. And the reason why we, who, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we, we struggle, right? We, we wrestle with our repentance and we, on, we acknowledge, man, there's, there's some messed up places in my heart. Um, my, there are places in my heart that are diamond hard. And there's some stubbornness in my shoulder. And there is some messy nasty stuff in my ears that are making me deaf uh, to God's words. So then we're kind of stuck, right? Like, all right, if I'm going to acknowledge that I I have lacked and I don't do this perfectly, what what status does that put me in? I I want God to hear me. I don't want to not be heard. Uh, And yet I can't even repent perfectly. In fact, I have to repent of my the sin in my repentance because a lot of what I'm doing is trying to just make life work better for me instead of really, truly with 100% pure devotion to God, loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as myself. There goes my drill. Nobody does that. We can't, we can't do that perfectly. Which means we have to come back to Jesus who, who did do that perfectly. Hebrews chapter 5 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. His sacrifice was received because of his reverence, his sacrifice of himself 
was received because every part of the heart of Jesus was soft and tender toward God. Every part of his shoulder was willing to go to that cross. Everything in his ears was open to the word of God. And we rely on him. He is our justification. If we're going to be forgiven, it's because we are clinging to our true prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. And if we are doing that, that reorients the why of of religion. Why do we do this? Why do we come to church? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? Why do we give? Why do we fellowship? Why do we do missions? Why do we do any of this stuff? It's not so that we can feel better about ourselves or our Christianity or better in our relationship with God and with other people and, and impress them. No, it's because that's what God redesigned us to do. He restored us so that we could be who we were made to be. Reflections of his glory and ambassadors of his, of his blessings. Um, John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus, sort of like this commission that comes to Zechariah asking for, like, hey, should we keep fasting? John the Baptist disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn? Are they supposed to fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? That makes no sense. But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. That statement by Jesus gets to the heart of true religion. Why do we fast? We fast when the bridegroom is taken away from us. When do we feast? We feast when the bridegroom is with us. We Fast because we are longing for more of Jesus. And we feast because we are rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. So whether we feast or we fast, it's all about Jesus and it's not about us. I like how John Piper puts it. God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on earth can satisfy our souls besides God. God must reward this cry. Because God is, the most, is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's very God-centered. So, all right, let me leave you with this. When we feel the pinch of pain, spiritual pain, physical pain, relational pain, financial pain, um, you know, you name the pain. When you feel that and you're a Christian, what goes through your head? probably um, the first thing you want is relief. And you don't get relief. And you pray for relief, and it doesn't come. And you keep praying, and no relief. Pray, no relief. Pray, no relief. And then you go, am I being judged? Am I being punished? Is, 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 is Zechariah 7 happening to me? Is, is, um, is Second Kings happening to me? Am I being judged for my sins? Right? I mean, it seems like God doesn't hear me. It seems like my life or the landscape around me is, uh, is desolate. It seems like I am in exile or spiritual Aleppo or just things are not going well. Is God doing this to me to punish me? Um, maybe. <laughs> How's that for a 
really reassuring answer. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, the, as truthfully as I can say, I, I don't know for sure, and I don't know if you can know for sure. Because, again, when we're honest, we know that we bring our sins to the table. We know that we have unconfessed sins. None of us has confessed everything. None of us is perfectly sanctified. And so, you know, if, if we have sinned, uh, and, and therefore, uh, God's going to hold us accountable for our sins. Shouldn't we expect there's going to be uh, consequences for our sins from time to time in our lives? And if that's the case, we should be examining our hearts, examining ourselves and saying, Lord, see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm, I want to repent of what I need to repent of. I want to own my stuff and I want to bring it before you. And the funny thing is, is that what is that repentance going to look like? If we're sincere, we pray the prayer, but John the Baptist would say, you know, funny things like, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Like, show me. Show me. Show me your repentance. And what that looks like is Isaiah 58. Zechariah 7. Kindness and mercy toward others. Treating others with the same kindness and mercy that you're hoping to get from God. And if we can't do this, why would we hope for this? You know, the whole point of restoring us is to make us these people who are, you know, reflections of glory and ambassadors of blessing. If we're missing the whole point, why would God restore us. We're missing it. At the same time, the good news is, look, if maybe, you're, maybe you are being held accountable for stuff and God's trying to get your attention and call you to repentance, will you just start treating people, asking God to forgive you and start treating people the way you want God to, to treat you? And then even if you're not being punished, guess what? Sometimes God's taking us through pain as a trial. Like remember Job. And the whole point of Job is that he was a righteous man. He was still suffering. Job's friends assumed he had sinned. Why else would he be suffering? But Job's suffering was not a punishment. Job's suffering was a vindication. Showing the world, showing even the heavenly host, you know what? Job's religion is not based on comfort and prosperity. His ultimate hope is not in his health, his ultimate hope is not in his wealth. His ultimate hope is not in his tents. It's not in his camels. It's not in his wife. It's not in his kids. It's not in anything that this world has to offer. Job's faith was vindicated. His hope was in God. He understood true religion. And he hung on to it tenaciously. So on our best days, God intends for us to live our lives feasting on Jesus. But then when we have those hard days, those painful days, those painful you know, episodes, and sometimes they can be incredibly long, God intends for us to live our lives fasting, longing, expressing more of our desire for, for Jesus, showing others that Jesus offers us everything we need even if it seems like the world is falling apart. But, um, let me leave you with this too. Uh, our feasting is coming. Um, we're in this in-between time, the now and the not yet. You know, we've got these times when Jesus 
who has come, um, he's shown the light of his grace on us, he's loved us, and we feast in light of that truth. You know, when we go to our picnic, we're going to pray and we're going to give thanks for the, the evidence of Jesus in the faces of those around us, and we'll feast in honor of that. And at the same time, we feel his absence. And we long for more of Jesus, and we feel the distance from him, and we fast to express that. Um, it took a while, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but at the end of chapter 8, Zechariah actually gives these inquirers a very direct answer. Should we continue to fast in the fifth month? We've been doing these many years. And in verse 18 of chapter 8, the word of the Lord of hosts came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fifth month and the other months shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. A day is coming when we will fast no more. A day is coming when the presence of Jesus will be with us, the bridegroom will be with us, and we will be with him, and we will not sorrow anymore. We will feast forever. We will feast forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we long for that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, for your people, for showing us more of Jesus, uh, for calling our hearts to be more centered on him and to long for more of him. Uh, We do pray that you would look and search in our hearts for the ways that we're just sort of manipulating uh, religion and Christianity to get what we want. And instead, help us to want more of you. Uh, help our longing to be uh, true. We thank you for restoring us and to calling us into a relationship with yourself. We pray more and more we would be uh, showing the world a reflection of your glory and that we would be ambassadors of your blessings. We pray for those who are in, uh, in pain. Uh, Lord, for all the places that every one of us feels the, the pinch uh, and the curse of this world, please direct our hearts to you. Please do minister to our needs. Uh, Take the pain away. We long for that day. We look forward to that feast forever. Uh, And in the meantime, just help us to hold on to you, we pray. In Jesus' name.